Let's start this evening in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1 gives us the Bible definition, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews. I think it was Paul, whoever it is, is inspired of the Holy Ghost to give us a Bible definition of, of what faith is. Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. There are two translations, the Weiss translation and also uh, Weymouth's translation of this verse that use the phrase title deed. Instead of evidence, it, it calls it the title deed. Faith is the title deed for what we hope for. Now, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, the Holy Spirit referring to Jesus, it says, But Jesus has received a more excellent ministry by which he is the mediator of a better covenant. Talking about the new covenant being better than the old covenant. He is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, I'm sorry, established on better promises. Then in chapter 9 of Hebrews, he talks about the, the testator and the um, mediator as an example for what things belong to us. Now, we don't use those terms uh, nowadays. We would call the, the mediator, and the mediator is one that goes between, one that represents both parties. In the, in the illustration of uh, somebody dying, the testator dying, and his will being put in force or um, becomes active, we would call that an executor of the estate. But the point is the same. Paul makes the, the, uh, the argument that there's only one way you can know what happens according to the will of the person that dies, and, then, and that is by reading the will. And that's what the Bible is. Paul says so. He is instructed by the Holy Ghost to tell us that the Word of God is that which enables us and reveals to us what belongs to us. Now, let's talk about an, the, uh, the illustration of somebody dying and their will being put in force or made effective. Unless there's been prior communication or some kind of discussion ahead of time, nobody knows what is going to take place or what the will of the person that died, the loved one that died, wants to take place concerning the distribution of their assets. It comes down to the reading of the will. They have to wait to find out, the loved ones and the family members, whoever's involved, has to wait and find out what the will says about the things that belong to you or about the distribution of assets. Now, let's say, let's imagine here, and I, I'm sure you'll enjoy this. Let's imagine that someone in your family that was very wealthy dies. I'm sure there would be, again, without prior knowledge or some communication about it ahead of time, I'm sure there'd be a lot of buzz in your family about what's going to happen. How's everything going to go? Who's going to get what and so forth? And then so you, you go to a meeting that's been set up by the executor of the estate, usually is the attorney. And in that meeting, it's revealed to the family members, everybody that's concerned, who gets what and how things are going to ha be handled. Now, let's say that, that they leave the bulk of their estate to you. As their loved one, they leave stuff to you. Whatever it may be, the bulk of their inheritance or the bulk of their estate goes to you. You find out about it at the reading of the will. And let's say that there's uh, finances, you know, monies, cash, and so forth, jewelry and such, different types of valuables that are part of the inheritance that, you've, uh, that the, your loved one willed to you. But there's also a, a real estate. Now, when did that stuff belong to you? When you found out at the reading of the will? Or when your loved one died? See, folks, the point is, and the point that Paul makes 
and using this example, this illustration, is that things belong to you as a part of your spiritual inheritance the moment that Jesus died and paid for it. When he died, his will became active. When he died on the cross, that which was willed to you as a part of his inheritance belonged to you. But now we're back to the reading of the will, the, the, uh, the meeting where the family gets together, whoever it is, and the will is being read. It would be silly for you to expect to walk out of that meeting with everything that you own, everything that was bequeathed to you in your hand. That's not usually the place where the d- distribution of the assets takes place. And if it's real estate, it may take a period of time for the title to be transferred over into your name. We wouldn't think anything strange about that, would we? It still belongs to you. Now, what would be um, something that we could expect, maybe uh, we could call it a common practice, is if particularly if there's real estate involved, maybe it's a vacation home in Hawaii. You're now the owner of a vacation home in, your, in Hawaii because of the will bequeathing it to you. It would be appropriate for you to have some kind of legal description or maybe pictures of the place that the, the executor of the will gives to you to let you know what's yours. So you could leave that meeting very happy. I would assume everybody would want a vacation home in Hawaii, so we'll say you're happy. So you leave that meeting happy. You start telling everybody or friends or family members or whoever it might be, people that you're associated with, you begin telling them what belongs to you. But you've never been there. You don't have the money in your hand. And then after a period of time, whatever period of time would be appropriate for something like that to take place, the title deed is transferred over into your name. The property is transferred over into your name and there is delivered to you a title deed. Now, you still haven't been to Hawaii to see the property. You still have nothing except the legal description of the property and maybe the pictures associated with the property, but it's yours. And you wouldn't be shy about telling people it was yours. Now, what if somebody came up to you and said, even after the title deed had been delivered to you, you told them what belongs to you now and how your loved one left it to you as part of an inheritance? Wouldn't it be silly for them to say, well, you don't own a vacation home in Hawaii. You've never been there. You've never seen it. Why in the world would you say that you own it or that it belongs to you? Well, you might bring out the title deed. You might even bring out the pictures and say, yeah, I do. It's right here. The the lawyer gave me this. This is what it is. But that's exactly the way some people do with the things that belong to them as a part of the inheritance that we receive when Jesus died and rose again from the dead. That's why Weymouth and Weiss translations say faith is the title deed. It doesn't matter if you've seen it yet. It still belongs to you. Now turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4 beginning in verse 20. Scriptures I assume that you're familiar with. We use them a lot around here. Verse 20, my son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes. I want you to notice that. Let them not depart from thine eyes. He goes on to say, keep them in the midst of your heart. Now, why do we want to do that? Verse 22, for they, my words, are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. The word of God reveals to us what Jesus purchased for us. 
The word of God reveals to us what Jesus, what Jesus bequeathed to us. The word reveals what Jesus said belongs to you whether you've seen it or not. But notice it says about the word, let them not depart from thine eyes. In other words, look at it. Realize it. Recognize and understand the picture that the word of God is painting for you. If we talk about, which we're trying to, if we talk about healing belonging to us, if we quote the scriptures that say Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. If we look at other scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament that tell us about healing being a part of the price that Jesus paid, a part of what he shed his blood for, that's what the Bible means when it says with his stripes we are healed. The stripes brought the shedding of blood and that paid the price for our physical well-being. If we say these things, pictures come to mind. If we say that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus, if we go the word as a foundation for truth, that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus, you see yourself well. You can't help it. It just automatically happens. Whatever we talk about, whatever you're listening to, creates a picture in line with that, to whatever degree you're paying attention at least. That picture is created on the inside of you. And since we're quoting the word that tells us these things are true, it's the word of God that provides the picture. And that picture is a picture of health. Now here where it talks about um, letting them not depart from before your eyes, James picks up on this. James picks up on this in the first chapter of the letter that he wrote to the church. He talks about seeing yourself. He talks about being a difference between being a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. He says being a doer of the word is to see the picture that the word of God paints. He uses the illustration of seeing yourself in the mirror of the word of God that reflects who we are and what Jesus purchased for us. He talks about it in terms of seeing yourself in the mirror. He said a doer of the word keeps that picture in front of him even after he gets away from the mirror. But a hearer of the word only is somebody that hears the the word of God, hears what the Bible has to say about what belongs to them, sees it momentarily but then loses it as soon as they walk away from the service or whatever they've been listening to the word, whatever context they've been listening to the word in. Paul says that, uh, I'm sorry, James says, That that's the difference between a hearer and a doer. Whether or not we let it depart from before our eyes. The Bible says, even the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, said that the word of God is life unto those that find it. And health to all their flesh. Doesn't that imply a search and discovery process? The word is life unto those that find it. How are you going to find the word? You're going to have to look for it. You're going to have to put in some effort. You're going to have to set your will to choose to see yourself the way the Bible says you are. To to choose to see yourself well instead of sick. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I've got sickness in my body. That's the best reason in the world to look at the word and see what belongs to you. Or to look at the word and see who you are. Because we're all faced with the same challenge. Same options belong to each and every one of us in each and every situation in our lives. We can either see what the word says about it or we can see ourselves according to the circumstances. If you've got pain in your body or sickness in your body in some manner, you have a choice whether or not to see yourself sick or to see yourself healed by the stripes of Jesus. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I've got pain. 
My body hurts. This sickness, this disease is taking a toll on me because I'm in pain. And folks, I think we all know that pain will wear you down. It's one of the greatest tools that the devil uses to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And if he can, he'll use as much pain as as possible to create the dilemma in us and to magnify that dilemma in us as to what are we going to look at. Are we going to look at what we feel like? Are we going to look at the pain that's in our body? Or are we going to accept as truth what Jesus told us belongs to us? You are healed by his stripes. That's the choice that we all make. And it's a choice that we make in almost every situation in life. It's the choice that the devil wants to influence us in making. He wants us to see things as they are. You know the difference between facts and truth, don't you? It may be a fact, a physical fact, a physical reality, that there's pain in our body or sickness is attacking us. But that doesn't make it the truth. What I mean by that, and Paul talked about this to the Corinthians, he talked about temporal things. He talked about everything that goes on around us in this natural realm, this physical realm, is temporal. The word temporal means subject to change. Well, if something is subject to change, then whatever we see, whatever we experience, whatever we feel, if it's subject to change, it can't be truth because truth never changes. The truth is not true one day and then it's not true the next day. Truth is eternal. I always get amused when I hear people saying, well, what's your truth? Here's my truth. And that's just about the stupidest position you can take. Because the truth is the truth no matter what you think or what I think. The truth is the truth. And since God's word is truth and it cannot fail, it never changes, never comes to an end in any form whatsoever, God's word is truth. So no matter what I see or feel in my body, no matter what I see or feel in my circumstances or about my circumstances, the word of God is truth. No matter what the doctor tells me about my condition, no matter whatever else is going on, the Bible says Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses and with his stripes I'm healed. And that creates the choice for me. What do I see? Do I see myself well? The Bible says I'm well. Do I see myself well or do I see myself according to the circumstances? Which one's it going to be? You can't look at both. One will capture your attention and the other will fade away. That's what James is talking about being a doer of the word. Now, folks, when the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for, faith is the the title deed of the things that we hope for, that confidence that comes from hearing the word, seeing the picture that the Bible paints for us, seeing the truth as God delivers it to us, that situation, that condition determines what we're going to have. It will determine what we're going to have, what we're going to experience. It will determine our future. And the word of God is never subject to change, whereas everything in this physical realm is. So what do we do? Well, it may be a fact, physical fact, physical reality, that we've been diagnosed with some sickness, whatever it is, and that we're being attacked with it and the circumstances are influenced or affected by it, whether it be pain or whatever else. But we still have the same choice as to what we're going to look at. There's a story in Numbers 
Old Testament book of Numbers where it tells us about how that Israel got into rebellion and poisonous snakes came into the, into the camp. And there were a lot of people that died. God didn't do it. They did it. They recognized it themselves. They recognized that it was because of their own rebellion. And so they went to Moses and said, we've sinned. You've got to help us out here. We've sinned. Call on God and see what we can do to get out of this terrible condition. So God told Moses to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. Jesus said in John chapter 3, just after he gave us the 16th verse about God so loved the world and so forth, he talked about that brass serpent on the pole as being a type of him and his crucifixion. But God told Moses, make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. And he said, everyone that looketh on it shall live. Now that word look doesn't mean give a casual glance at. That word look means fix your attention on. Now why was that such an important issue? That which was a type of Jesus on the pole, or on the cross, I'm sorry, that serpent on the pole. I think a lot of people should think, or would think, would expect that God would have had a a brass lamb put on a pole. But Jesus was made sin for us. Jesus on the cross was him becoming sin, laying down his life, not just his physical life, but himself, his very essence, laying that down, offering himself uh, unto spiritual death, so that, we, so that our price could be paid for. Well, why is looking on the brass serpent such a big deal? It says everyone that looked on it lived. Well, the snakes are still around their feet. So they've got a choice. What are they going to look at? They're going to look at where the snakes are? Or are they going to look up to that which represents their deliverance? That's the choice that we all have, and we have it in every situation we encounter. Which way are you going to look? The Bible says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham... Being not weak in faith, he staggered not through unbelief, but looking under the promise of God. Looking under the promise of God. It tells us that Abraham fixed his attention on God's promise. Just like Proverbs chapter 4 tells us, let them, my words, the word of God, not depart from your eyes. Paul kept his eyes on what God said, even though he's in an impossible circumstance. It's impossible for his body to function the way that God said that it would to bring forth the child. Same thing's true for Sarah. Their age made disqualified them from being parents anymore. Their bodies didn't work in that way any longer. But Abraham, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the impossibility in the natural for what God said would be, he kept his attention on the word. He kept his attention on the word. What are we looking at? What you look at determines everything that's going to happen to you. What you look at determines your future. My son attended to my words. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, God sent his word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. My son attended to my words. The word of God is the power of God to deliver, to heal, to rescue. It's the power of God in operation here on the earth. And it will only work when faith is mixed with it. Now, in this case, faith being mixed with it means keeping your eyes on the word, inclining your ear unto his sayings, what God's word says. That doesn't mean you have to shut everything else out. It doesn't mean that you've got to tell the doctor, rebuke the doctor when he says, here's what's going on. Some people have done things like that just out of ignorance. I'm not sure if their heart was right about it or not, but that's just stupid. Don't try to tell the doctor what you're believing for. He doesn't care. 
But no matter what we hear from the doctor, no matter what we hear from anybody else, no matter what the devil's telling us and screaming in our ears, we choose to incline our ear into God's things. It's our choice. One of the great unknown truths in the body of Christ is that you can be as strong in faith as you want to be. You're the one that determines that, not God. So many times people will come with a testimony of healing or whatever and other people will hear that, somebody else will hear that and they'll say, well, that's great, but they, they must, God just must have given them more faith than he gave me. You determine how strong you are in faith. You determine what degree you give attention to the word of God. You determine what place you give the word of God in your life. You decide that, not him. He tells you how. He tells you, here's a roadmap. Proverbs chapter 4 is a roadmap how to be strong in faith. Incline your ear unto his sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes. And keep them in the midst of your heart. Keeping them in the midst of your heart means you don't say anything to the contrary. The word and only the, the word and the word only is what you choose to speak. Why? Because everything in this natural realm is subject to change. It's temporal. It can and will change. Well, what changes it? Faith. Faith in God's word. It's the only means of, of deliverance, the only means of help that the Bible gives us. Believing what God said to be true. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Paul's writing by the Holy Ghost, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And he says in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us. Notice that's past tense. He hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, you'll find out that the curse of the law is two, uh, threefold. One is its spiritual death. Secondly, it's poverty. And third, it's sickness. The Bible identifies those things as a curse of the law. But here it says Christ has redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, talking about his sacrifice on the cross, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And here's why he did that. Verse 14, that or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. So that the blessing of Abraham, no question about it, the blessing of Abraham included healing. It included financial prosperity too. And they had a promise of new life, eternal life that Jesus fulfilled. Notice Jesus became a curse for us for a very specific purpose. He redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham would come on us. So that the blessing of Abraham, all that the blessing of Abraham entailed, so many times we'll see blessings and, and uh, see things enumerated in the Old Testament, things that God has provided for us or wants to do for us, wants to operate in, in our lives or whatever, and the devil will be right there saying, well, that's just for the Jews. Well, these verses in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, 14, tell us, that everything that belonged to the Jews belongs to us too now. We've got it better than they had. We've got a better covenant established on better promises. It's better for us because now Jesus has paid the price for spiritual death so that we can have eternal life, not just have a promise of it. You don't enter into eternal life when you get to heaven. You enter into eternal life when you make Jesus your Lord. We have eternal life here. We have the life of God here. We have the redemptive and resurrection power of God here, not just when we get to heaven. 
This says, Galatians chapter 3 tells us, that Christ died on the cross for us specifically so that everything that God promised the Jews in the Old Testament could be ours, plus the blessings that come as a result of Jesus fulfilling the plan of redemption through his resurrection. That makes it a better covenant established upon better promises. The better promises include the eternal truth of God's word that will change everything about this natural realm. This natural realm was created with words. Your word spoken from your lips, your words in line with what the Bible says is true will still change this temporal realm. It will still change the earth around you because that's how faith operates. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Faith of the heart speaks, believing that what it says will come to pass, and it does. This is the confidence that we're not supposed to turn loose of. This is the confidence that we're to hold fast to. Now, why would the Bible make such a big deal about holding fast your profession of faith? I think we have to look a little deeper and realize that that's the thing the devil's trying to make you turn loose of. And that is the fight of faith. The fight of faith is to determine for yourself, what will I see? What will I listen to? What will I give attention to? And what will I say? That's what Proverbs 4, verse 20 through 22 is all about. It's about what you look at, what you give attention to, what you listen to, and what you speak. When you give the word of God first place, then it becomes life. Because then you find it. It becomes life to all your flesh. Another translation says health or medicine to all of your flesh. It becomes medicine to your flesh when you choose to give it first place. And not until then. See, it's true that Jesus died for everybody in the world. It's true that Jesus died so that every person could be saved, could receive eternal life. But you know as well as I do, not everybody is saved and not everybody is going to be saved. How come? Because they don't give attention to the word. They don't accept what the Bible says to be true about Jesus' sacrifice. They've got their own ideas about things, whatever those might be. They've got their own ideas, which means they're looking in a different direction than what God said. Now, God will let you believe a lie. God will let anybody believe a lie. He'll let them speak contrary to his word. He'll let them cause their own destruction because of the words of their mouth. He'll allow that. It's not what he wants. But he's not the one that has authority in your life. You do. He's not the one that decides what you look at and listen to. He's not the one that decides what you speak. You do that. He tells you. He gives you plenty of information up front to know that you are affected by what you look at and what you listen to and what you speak. But it's still up to you and me to do it. Some people take the position that, well, I can't say what I, I can't say anything that disagrees with what I see. I'm just calling it like it is. So they speak temporal facts, things that are subject to change. And it leads them around the road to destruction. That's not where they want to go. But they don't believe what the word of God says, or maybe not even know what the word of God says concerning how to walk in deliverance how to walk in the things that Jesus provided for us. It's only by looking at the word 
only by looking at the word. Let me show you one last thing. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 13. Remember Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed as everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. Let's start in Luke chapter 13. Jesus is ministering. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath day. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bound together and could in no wise lift up herself. So whatever she had, whatever paralysis or uh, arthritis or whatever it was, has got this woman bent over almost double. She's living her life looking at the ground. What a horrible condition. She's been that way for 18 years. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. The word loosed, the root word for the word loosed, the word that's translated loose in this verse, means redeemed. He's saying, Woman, thou art redeemed from thine infirmity. Now, we think of redemption as being the shed blood of Jesus, and it is. So how could she be redeemed when Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross? Because as far as God is concerned, Jesus presenting himself as a sacrifice willing to carry out the plan and the purpose of God, enabled him as God's agent, as God's emissary on the earth, enabled him to bring about the results of resurrection even before it took place. So he said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. You're redeemed from this condition. Now, can she stand up yet? Not yet. Jesus tells her something that contradicts everything about her physical circumstance and condition. Looking at what Jesus said, there is absolutely no reason to think that anything has happened. But Jesus is announcing what belongs to her. He hadn't ministered to her yet. He hadn't touched her. He hasn't provided healing power. But he's telling her that something is hers without any change, the slightest change in her physical condition. Well, let's keep reading. Jesus says, woman, thou art loose or redeemed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Notice Jesus said it before he touched her. He told her what was the truth. You're redeemed from your infirmity. Jesus knew what God had sent him to the earth for. Luke chapter four identifies it. He says, it says the first place that Jesus went in the city of Capernaum, or I'm sorry, in the, in the city of Nazareth had been brought up he preached the spirit of the lord is upon me because he's anointed me and part of what he's anointed to do is to heal the sick jesus knows what he was sent to the earth for we don't know if she does or not we don't know if she knew anything about it we don't know if she's ever heard of jesus we don't even know if she's in that particular synagogue because jesus was there we just know that she's there and then jesus says to her woman thou art loose from thine infirmity she can't move. She can't stand up. She can't do anything differently than she did when, than she could when she first came in. But Jesus has delivered an unchanging, an unchanging word. Jesus has spoken truth that flies in the face of the circumstances that's in her, that exist in her body. So which is true. It's a fact that she's bowed over and can't lift up. It's a fact that her body is affected by this condition, whatever it is, the Bible doesn't, doesn't identify it other than it keeps her bent over. Nothing has changed circumstantially. Nothing has changed except one thing, and that is 
the word of God has been has the will of God has been revealed by His words. That's the only thing that's changed. The will of God is revealed by Jesus saying, "Woman, you are loose from your infirmities." But the power doesn't change anything for another few seconds when He lays hands on her. He lays hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. The Jews didn't like that. They got upset. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work in them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Their problem is the day of the week. Now, don't you know that was a blessing for the woman who's now been made straight to hear from the leaders of the synagogue? Just, it's just lovely to have other people rejoice with you, isn't it? He answered with indignation. Now, if this is her hometown, she's been in the synagogue numerous times, and he's never done anything to help her in any way whatsoever. He had nothing to help her with. They weren't operating from any source of power. And you can see very clearly from his reaction to this woman being healed on the Sabbath day, he's certainly not accustomed to the power of God. He's certainly not accustomed to people being healed. He's only concerned about his rule, his ritual, as the leader of the synagogue being broken. Well, Jesus immediately apologizes. He, did, he says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your rules and your traditions around here. No, not really. Jesus answered and said, you hypocrite. This guy would have been better off just staying quiet. You hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath lose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? In other words, they're willing to break their own rules about not doing any work to provide for their animals, which provide an income for them. So they put finances above their own rules, but they want Jesus to live by those rules when it comes to healing the sick. But Jesus tells us why he did what he did. Verse 16, he says, ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Notice what he's saying. He calls her a daughter of Abraham, which means she's a, a child of Israel. She's an Israelite. She's a physical descendant, natural descendant of Abraham. Jesus said, because she's a descendant of Abraham, that's the first reason why she ought to be set free. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. That the blessing of Abraham would come on the Gentiles. That the blessing of Abraham would come on you and me. Notice Jesus' attitude toward it when he was here on the earth. He said it belongs to her. Healing belongs to her because she's a child of Abraham. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham... That's the first reason. And the second reason, he says, whom Satan is bound, lo, these 18 years. First John chapter 3 tells us that Jesus was made manifest on the earth to destroy the works of the devil. Here's one of them. Jesus identifies this as one of them. He says this woman's been bound 18 years by what the scripture defined earlier as the spirit of infirmity. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means she was oppressed, her body was oppressed by an evil spirit. If so, Jesus didn't do anything special about that. He just laid hands on her and ministered healing i don't know if that's what spirit of infirmity means or if it just means she had a sickness a long-lasting sickness that's defined 
or described as a spirit. Could be either way. Either way, Jesus operated, whichever it was, Jesus operated in the same manner that he would have if there had been no evil spirit there. My point about this is very simply, Jesus didn't make a big deal about the work of the devil. He just went around destroying it. He didn't have to name any evil spirit to get her healed. He just laid hands on her. So he says, oh, not this woman. Now, here's God's attitude, folks. You need to understand this. If Jesus operated according to the will of God, and he said he did, he said, I only do the things and say the things that my father says. I only do what my father does. I see him. I look at him. I think Jesus is talking about seeing him in the word. And I do the same works that he does. If Jesus is doing the will of the father in this case, that means this is the will of God in every case. Some people have the idea, it seems, that people nowadays in the modern day are supposed to endure sickness and disease to be taught something of the Lord. Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus never found any of those people in the multitudes of folks that came to him when he was ministering on the earth? Not once. Of all the hundreds, maybe thousands of people that were healed in Jesus' ministry while he was here, not one time, not once, did he come to somebody and say, you know, God has revealed to me that it's his will for you to stay sick. Jesus said, he that's seen me has seen the Father. Well, what do we know about the Father? Well, one thing is God says, I'm God, I change not. God never changes, which means his will cannot change. So if it was the will of God for this woman to be healed, it's the will of God for every man and every woman to be healed. Otherwise, God's a respecter of persons, and the Bible says he's not. So Jesus says, ought not this woman... Being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Please understand, here's God's unchanging will. Those that are children of Abraham, which Galatians 3 says, if we're of faith, we are the children of Abraham. God said, through the words, through the mouth of Jesus, that any one of his children, any, anyone, any person, any human being that's made Jesus the Lord of their lives, ought to be healed for the same reason that this woman ought to be. It belongs to us. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? The second part of it, as we mentioned, is that it's a work of the devil. When Jesus was here on the earth, his purpose, according to the scripture, was to destroy the works of the devil. What did Jesus leave us here on the earth to do? Finish his work. Operate in the power of his name so that we break the power of the devil too over ourselves and over other people. So Jesus has identified an eternal willingness on the part of God for every one of his children to walk in health. Everyone. Everyone. In Jesus' words, it would be this. Ought you not to be healed as a child of God? Ought you not to be free from the power of the devil because you're a child of God? Ought you not walk in the fullness of his healing blessing and healing power 
because you're a child of God? That's what he's saying, folks. That's what he's saying. Jesus is furthermore saying, I don't want to leave any of Abraham's children subject to the bondage, influence, or limitations that the devil has put on her. Jesus wants every one of his children, meaning the church, meaning you and me, he wants every one of his children to be free from every aspect, every work, every influence of Satan. Ought not this woman? Well, what about you? Ought you not to be healed because you're a child of God and the devil's trying to gum up the works? The devil's operating where he doesn't have a right? Ought you not to be healed? If the answer is different from you than it was from this woman, then we can't trust the Bible to be the truth. But thank God we can. Thank God his word is truth. So what are you going to look at? What are you going to see? What are you going to keep before your eyes and keep in your heart? What are you going to attend to? What are you going to incline your ear unto? I'm choosing the truth. I'm choosing the eternal, never-changing, never-ending truth that it's God's will for all of us to be well. It's God's will for all of us to be free from the work of the enemy. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we love you so much. We see your will confirmed through the works of Jesus when he was here on the earth. Confirmed by the very thing that he told us. Specifically in this case, concerning this woman. We, therefore, believing that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and by his stripes we were healed, we choose to accept the healing power of God to change our bodies, to alter our conditions, to restore our physical flesh to divine health. Father, you said in your word that you sent your word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. You said, Father, that we can access and take hold of by faith anything and everything that Jesus purchased for us. And the Bible could not be clearer that he purchased healing for our bodies. Therefore, Father, we believe that we receive healing in the name of Jesus. We believe that we receive the healing that Jesus purchased for us now in Jesus' name. We've got your word on it, Lord. And whether we can see a change in our bodies immediately or not, your word is true. So we thank you for it. We believe that we receive our healing in Jesus' name. Now the Bible says, folks, the Bible says that if you'll hold fast to that confidence, there's nothing the devil can do to stop it from being a reality. Now let me ask you this. I want you to consider something else about this woman in Luke chapter 13. What if Jesus just said, woman, you are loose from your infirmity? And didn't lay hands on her. What if he hadn't laid hands on her. But had simply said. Woman you are loose from your infirmity. What should she have done. Or what would she have done. Well she'd be faced with the same dilemma that we are. 
She's got a word from the Son of God that says she's loose, but her body says she's not. She'd have to make the choice. What's she going to look at? What's she going to see? What's she going to consider? If she considered the words of Jesus to be true, then it wouldn't have mattered if it happened that day or the next day or a week later. She'd still been set free. She'd still be restored to divine health. Don't let time or circumstances related to time deter you from believing and knowing that God's word is always true, that God's word works. Don't let anything talk you out of that. That's the holding fast to the profession of your faith and holding fast to your confidence that the Bible requires. Faith is the evidence or the title deed of the things that we hope for. We've got his word on it. We may not have seen it yet in our bodies. We may not be experiencing it yet in our bodies. But if we hold fast to the word, the devil can do nothing to stop it from being a reality in our flesh. Not just an eternal truth, but a physical reality too. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Let's just worship him for a moment. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the word of God that sets us free. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that it's at work in our bodies even now, strengthening us. The Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is quickening our mortal bodies from within. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to believe your word. It's an honor, Lord, to receive our healing by faith. It's an honor to fight the good fight of faith and overcome the devil in every respect. It's an honor to walk by faith and see your will come to pass in our lives. We'll not turn back, Lord. We'll hold fast because you're faithful who promised. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We're not moved by what we see. We're not moved by what we feel. We're moved only by the word of God. And it never changes. We love you, Father. We thank you once again. Say it with me. I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. Amen.